and this is the Reason for Time podcast, episode three, a podcast about memory, truth, invention, and magic. Listen to Ethel Witty reading as Maeve Kura. Tuesday, July 22nd, 1919. I had to tell her, didn't I? Not only did the woman need to know Margaret and me could pay each week for our room, Bridie Clancy had the curiosity of someone didn't get out much, but parsed the world through the borders she pried open with her questions. The Chicago Magic Company. I won't have no spells or nothing under my roof, miss. I wanted to turn up my lips in the way I'd seen Mr. R do when a customer stepped into the shop and, his voice gone all sandy, Mr. R revealed what he called the grand mystery of illusion. It's all in the power to make people believe. Only to tease, sure, but... Bridie kept her place clean and provided us with leftover slivers of soap and a gas plate in the room and gave over a square of her icebox for our provisions. We needed a place for us both once Margaret turned in her cap and her apron and Paggy's mother, the lady would have been my mother-in-law, Mrs. Dwyer, she was, knew a good woman had a clean house on the near west side, didn't charge too much. There we were then through everything until Bridie Clancy pointed us to the door. Oh, no, I said to Bridie that first day. I told her Mr. R made me swear an oath of secrecy, her not knowing about my history with vows, then promised devotion in exchange for passage. You have to be a member of the Magician Society to learn such things, Mrs. Clancy. I'm just the girl moving orders along in the back. Still, she never stopped peering at me curiously, suspiciously, imagining more to me than you think a small body could hold. I knew it, she said in the end. Didn't I know it all along? But not that day. When Margaret and I went out the Tuesday morning, Bridie only stood at the landing. Don't forget the paper, soul Maeve, she reminded me. And I promised her that I never would. Not that day especially. It was going to be hot as blazes again. Maybe hotter than yesterday. The air already boggy, no wind. Cooler in our place, at least the front shop with its polished dark oak shelves of curiosities, the satin capes, the wands, the glossy top hats, and purple wizard caps with silver stars sewn on them. Decks of cards for sale and magic boxes with secret compartments and special coins for use for tricks, glass cases for the best illusions. Old posters showed Mr. R striking various splendid poses, and in a frame only painted gold but appearing actual, Houdini himself, his eyebrows bent over tortured eyes, as if on this occasion he might be foiled by the handcuffs binding his crossed arms at the wrists. Every morning I turned the patterned brass knob beneath the frosted glass with its arcs of letters, said, The Chicago Magic Company, entered the shop and greeted pretty Florence, always there before me and standing at the counter, that picture of the great Houdini started me thinking of the fixes Margaret and me got in and out of, same as the man himself. To keep his place the biggest magic concern in the centre of the country, Mr. R. was always scheming, thinking. He wanted to expand the enterprise, add a bureau especially for touring magicians wanted to try out their newest tricks. It's why he'd sent me to the bank the day before, with a letter he said would outline his vision. He no doubt wanted a loan of money to fit out the place, too, or why describe his plan to a bank, but he never said... Typical of him to be so formal when he had a telephone in the office, could have called for an appointment. But no, 
He liked to keep his schemes close to his vest and do things the old-fashioned way, Mr. R., and hadn't my errand put me right in the middle of a true historical event. In the space behind the shop at the front, closed-in cubes housed Mr. R. and Mr. M. The Rainbow Paper Company proprietor shared our place, though we never saw him much. An opened-up room had a row of desks for me, Evelyn, Ruth, and the big raised table where George, our artist fellow, scratched out the drawings for the catalogues, the tricks or effects so-called, and the paper party favours Mr. M. hawked in a publication of his own. George didn't work every day, but when he did come over, he, he bent over his tilted board near the window looking out over the South Dearborn Street. Then there was Billy, the stock boy, who did come every day, but only for the couple of hours it took him to package up what had been ordered and load the packages into a big bag for the postman, and to tell us the latest joke he'd picked up. Billy hoped to take to the stage himself one day, and he practiced on we girls at the back whenever he had a chance. T'was a grand building to enter each morning with them Indian heads carved in bronze above the elevator door above the foyer, the bright blue mosaic set out in pictures made of thousands of stamp-sized tiles, the story of Joliet discovering Chicago, and Père Marquette trying to make Catholics out of the Indians. Eight months into it, I liked to choose my elevator, the one under Blackhawk or Harry Bear, the names alone spinning my mind into wild fantasies. But the day I entered first, shy-like, the beauty of the place dwarfing me, same as the tall buildings outside, I followed the gloved hand of the colored man, Clyde, waved me through the ridged marble pillars toward an open cage without even noticing which hung, head hung over the one I stepped into. Hadn't I felt I was getting away with something? It was Gladys told me about the job, and Gladys, a girl just like me, meant anybody could work there, and so I rode up to the ninth floor where Mr. R. himself presided over the counter at the time. He wanted two girls, one to handle the front so as to leave him free for other business, studying and practicing, his jawing, his cigar smoking, but he could tell right off I didn't have the zing to chat with the parlor magicians and the vaudeville types visiting the shop. As he studied my face, divining me, the heat spread over my cheeks, same as lard on the bread the sisters would take out of the mission's big oven at Swallow's Cough before the sun crawled up the sky and all the little ones woke hungry. A sorcerer himself, Mr. R. dressed natty in clean cuffs and collar each day. His black hair slipped a quarter to one side, the rest to the other, like an open book more than half read, his moustache and even brush above lips thin as bridey soap. George used Mr. R. as a model for many of the drawings in the catalogue. He managed a good likeness, too, save for the eyes. Small blue-black points drilled into me that first day. Drilled but didn't penetrate, for he said, I take you for the trustworthy type. He never invited me to sit down or nothing, but said why he needed more staff was because he aimed to attract all the magicians, the conjurers and spiritualists passing through the city. Countless numbers of them had to do so, because every show in all the many theatres offered an act of the kind, from the simple ones where things appeared and disappeared, some fellow in a tuxedo plucking a real rabbit, twitching and twittering with fright, out of one of them hats like displayed on the shiny dark shelves, to the most mysterious. Mr. R. held forth describing dreams that turned out to be harder to realise than rabbits, for wasn't he after the biggest fish? even Blackstone and Thurston, and the young card man Vernon, even the Orientals. Imagined a cosy room, he did, where he'd set out a bottle and a humidor in his newest invention, and under the spell of the camaraderie he'd created, 
Mr. R would learn the secrets he craved and all them others could demonstrate their new acts. Sounded a grand dream to me, and in my heart speed, thinking maybe Anna Eva would visit too, though she was getting on then and you didn't find her touring to Chicago often. I'd seen her myself at the vaudeville with Gladys, us sitting up top the balcony of the Majestic, but closer would have been too much then at being my first show. There I sat in my best shirtwaist and a hat so big the man behind me asked me to hold it in my lap. Anna Eva came on late, the surprise guest. Then I wondered how there could be any more. Already a chimp had circled the stage on roller skates. A girl had danced with a chair beneath her teeth. There'd been a ragtime song and dance by a man in blackface. A couple of fellows wearing tall hats and sporting mustaches stretched out beyond their cheeks with boots had clomped across the boards, got in some kind of pretend tussle. The audience stamped their feet and some whistled when one of the cowboys chased the other one off. When the music changed to something eerie, caused shivers, Gladys squeezed my arm. The grand velvet curtain, always red they were, lifted and gathered, and there she was, Anna Ava herself, though I didn't know her name just then. Anna Ava standing, her fair hair bowed until the curtain, hoisted high as it would go, let clouds of vapor escape from even higher. Seemed like she stood in the sky. Cheers greeted her appearance, and her lips curled in that sweet smile I came to dream of later. Dressed all in white, she was, silk, lace trimmed, and the man introduced her, a young man in a tuxedo and hair with the shine of patent leather, such as I was to see on Mr. R., that fellow shouted out, Ladies and gentlemen, I am privileged to introduce the fabled woman of mystery, the very same that stumped the great Houdini, the incomparable Anna Ava Fay, who will perform her famous cabinet mystery. Mystery, he called it, not trick. We saw her tied into the cabinet, heard a banjo playing, tambourine rattling, saw the same objects fly out, then her, standing untied. A marvel, really. And it made us all laugh with amazement, most of us, them not doubters. How did she do it, we wondered. And since then I have found out. But the real magic came with the mind reading I was to see later, just the summer before that Tuesday in Chicago, when Mr. R. hired me to work for him at the magic company. The trustworthy type, he said. Anna Ava herself could not have been as convincing as me that day. Makes me think I did have the gift Mammy saw in Ennis. Comes from having been born before dawn. A present from her could have been, and why her regard lingered on me the moment of our leaving. Yes, I have considered that. How I foresaw the opportunities I would discover at Mr. R.'s place, even if it was only a job I wanted then. Yet if I could truly see what others could not, it had to be an act came and went. Or maybe tis a body resists what she knows, because feelings drive harder than reason. The bold in me moving ahead, hadn't it always been so? When I was writing The Reason for Time, belief became a theme, but unconsciously. I didn't set out to write a book about it. Ideas should come out of a story, I think, and not be imposed on it. When you do that, like some former fiction writing students I had who were in love with sci-fi, there's a danger that you'll neglect every other aspect. Of course, when you're finished, you'll often find that other aspects of the story do serve the idea. But in my experience, it happens naturally. I wanted to concentrate on how it was for Maeve that week when she met the mysterious streetcar conductor, who was, according to my mother's cousin Bob, 
related to our family. I've already mentioned that I knew almost nothing about the grandmother who inspired Maeve, so I had to make up what I needed for the story. How old she was at the time, what she looked like, her personality. I also needed the simple details that are so important for scene creation. Where she lived, what she did for a living. Maeve was a working girl, like the legions of self-supporting young women that were beginning to live on their own in American cities for the first time in history. To make some decisions, I could go backwards, start with a book such as Joanne Mayerowitz's Women Adrift, which describes those women in sociological terms, but also suggests where a young, uneducated, poor immigrant might have worked sweatshops, laundries, offices, department stores. It was from that study that I also learned how much Maeve would have been earning as a clerk and where she would probably have spent her little money. I wanted her to be a clerk because on the one birth certificate I did find, my mother's, her mother, my grandmother, described herself as a clerk and also gave the address where she lived. Now I forget which came first, but I think I decided to have her work in the Marquette building because it was close to the bank where she saw the blimp crash. Also, it's a stunning building, full of mosaics, marble, shiny brass fittings. If you're in Chicago, you must see it. The bronze heads of Indian chiefs look down from above the elevators on the main floor in the mezzanine. It's fun to read their names. This would all have been quite impressive for a poor girl from Ireland, not to mention fun for me to describe. But what would Maeve do there? I'm not sure how I decided to have her work at the Magic Company either. I might have been looking through the building archives when I discovered that the Magic Company was a tenant in 1919. Or it could have been at Chicago's impressive Harold Washington Library because that library is where I found the old catalog for the Chicago Magic Company and the descriptions of tricks and illusions I use in the book. See what I mean about theme? I made that choice, not really aware at the time, that belief would recur as an undertone and sometimes as an overtone. Of course, magic, belief. It's all in the power to make people believe, says Mr. R., He's Maeve's boss and a magician himself. Magic was big business in Chicago in the early part of the 20th century. Maybe it's always been popular, but back then, every vaudeville show had a magic act. Harry Houdini showed that no prison cell or underwater crate, no chains or locks could hold him. And when his stage career was winding down, he turned to spiritualism debunking some spiritualists, but endorsing a few, including the popular Anna Eva Fay, who was Maeve's magic world crush. Anna Eva was the first woman magician spiritualist Maeve had seen on stage, and she was smitten. She thought of Anna as someone who would not only understand, but guide her. When I was back in Chicago for some book promotion in mid-June, I met the charming Don Evans, founder of the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame, and a writer himself whose novel, Good Money After Bad, includes this great line. Bravery and stupidity were such mirror images 
that you needed mismatched shirts to tell one from the other. It's true. What makes a believer different from a skeptic? Is it bravery or stupidity for a market gardener to devise centuries of agricultural experience and start her small plot fully expecting to make a living from it? Or a student writer to believe that he or she won't need a day job, that the problem with all those writers who haven't been able to make a living from their books is that they just aren't good enough. Or the girl who knows full well that sailors have sweethearts in every port and nevertheless is convinced that the sailor in her life has always been navigating straight to the harbor of her arms. Thanks to Ethel Witte, Ellie Impress of Chicago, Harris Dixon, David King, and the genius of Scott Joplin for helping make this podcast. And thank you for listening. For more information and news, check out the Reason for Time Facebook page. You can buy the book from any online retailer, or better yet, order it from your local independent bookstore, like the wonderful Powell's Books in Portland and elsewhere. You can also ask for it at your local library. I'm Mary Burns. Next time I'll talk about how Maeve became a believer.